Spin-Up Science podcast, where we explore the interface of science and startups and share the journeys of scientists turning their discoveries into companies. Today's episode is recorded live from an interview at one of our Spin-Up Society events. If you'd like to join us at a future live event, you can sign up on our website. But let's get straight into it. Uh, Today, we've got with us Dr. Andy Boyce. Andy is a former innovation manager at the University of Bristol and is now the CEO of same spin-out company, Rosa Biotech. Rosa is uh, developing a diagnostic device, uh, a differential sensing platform, aiming to provide patients, clinicians with tool sets that allow for earlier diagnosis. Andy, thank you very much for joining us. I was wondering if you could give us a little bit of a a further flesh out, a little bit more introduction into both yourself uh, and what Rosa is trying to achieve. Hello, everyone. As Ben said, my name is Andy Boyce. I'm CEO of Rosa Biotech. Um, I can go into my background first. So I've been uh, CEO of Rosa for a couple of years. It's the point we span out from the University of Bristol. And um, before then, I worked as innovations manager for Bristol Bio, which is a big multi-school uh, centre. And I had a really interesting role there just looking at how do you commercialize um, the, the really amazing technology that was coming through that institute. And it was an incredibly productive time. So while I was there, we span out four new companies. We also trained about 70 uh, early career researchers in um, innovation. And uh, we also brought in about 4.2 million pounds of grant funding to support innovation. So they, those are the kind of big achievements from that, that section of my career. And I basically, the only reason I left was because I was I really loved helping people commercialise their science, but I really wanted to have a go at it myself. So Rosa was the fourth spin-out company that we did, and I jumped across to, to lead that company. Uh, I have a technical background. I have a PhD in cancer research from the uh, CRUK-funded um, Cancer Research UK Institute at the University of Birmingham. So my PhD was mainly on molecular biology, genomics. I realised quite early on in my PhD career that a life in on the bench certainly was not what I wanted to do. I wanted to stay in science, but do something different. So that started my journey into lots of interesting kind of non, non-lab-based non kind of scientific roles and, and finally into where I am now in Rosa. Awesome. Can you tell us a little bit about what it is that Rosa is trying to do, Andy? In, in two words, we're looking at medical complexity. Fundamentally, we know an incredible amount now about how to treat the human body. And I think if you talk to your doctor 20, 50, 100 years ago, one of the conversations that people would have would be, we can't treat this disease. You, you know, we think you've got a disease, we can't treat it, and end of story. We're very much moving to an era where that's no longer the conversation that you have. The conversation is, we could treat you if we knew exactly what you were suffering from, or if we knew what you were suffering from six months ago rather than now. And, and to, to actually solve that problem, what you need is a, is a cheap, uh, highly sensitive and scalable testing platform. So when I say scalable, an ability to generate many, many different tests for different things rapidly and easily. And that's what we're trying to create at Rosa. So we're a diagnostics platform technology company, spun out of the University of Bristol, and we combine protein design, which comes in the labs of Professor Deck Wolfson, with advanced machine learning. Can you talk me a little bit through the kind of high-level overview of how the technology works? Yeah, so we use protein design, which came from Dex Lab, as I said, and uh, we use something called alpha helical barrels. Essentially, peptides are short proteins, so you can see they're made from amino acid building blocks. These are about 30 amino acids long, and they essentially form 
a spiral shape. Um, and you can design uh, these things really easily. They're, they're really cheap and easy to manufacture. And you can control the sequence of, that, of those amino acids, and that controls the properties of, of the peptide. Essentially, you can design these, these peptides so they stick together. And up to four of these peptides sticking together doesn't really do a lot. But if you get five peptides of these peptides together, you essentially... Uh, you have five sticks, like my five fingers, and that leaves you with a, a pore down the centre. They essentially pop out and it gives you a space in the centre. And into that um, pore, you can stick a, a dye, which is um, what's called a context-dependent dye. So essentially, it fluoresces when it's sat within the barrel or the pore, and it doesn't fluoresce when it's pushed out of the pore. And essentially, then what you can do is you add an analyte. So essentially, in a, in a diagnostic context, you add, you add a bodily fluid, and that will interact with the, the barrel and compete with the dye. So if, if, the, uh, if that biological fluid or the molecules in that biological push out that fluorescent dye, that sample will essentially lose its fluorescence, and you can measure that on a plate reader. So And that's what you do with a single barrel, and that's not very exciting. That's just a kind of very binary, one-dimensional sensor that would only tell you have you got a sample there or not. But you make that much more exciting by essentially designing an array of different barrels. As I mentioned, you can control the amino acid sequence and that changes the properties. And uh, using, using that, you can essentially change the size, shape and charge of the, of, of the pore the inside of that barrel. And by doing that, essentially, you can create an array of different barrels with different binding properties. And what that means is that when you add an analyte onto that, you uh, you essentially get a fingerprint of different binding characteristics or different levels of displacement from those barrels. And what we do is essentially we, we take a whole load of known samples, so healthy or diseased. We put them across our array. We use that to generate fingerprints. And then we use that to train machine learning models so that they can recognise a healthy or a disease sample and then we when we add a naive or unknown sample the machine learning models can classify that and give a degree of how confident they are so take it all the way back to the start again this is the way that your mammalian sense of smell works so depending on how good you are let's say a dog sense of smell because they look much better than us they're capable of essentially smelling many billions of different scents but you don't have a individual sensor up your nose for every one of those scents that you might encounter if you're a human you have 400 or so different sensors and your brain does the pattern recognition and then interpret that and recall it if you you encounter the same thing again so you've built essentially to summarize a sensing platform that doesn't look for any any particular analyte but you're looking at instead kind of like a complex mixture and looking at the sum of the parts as opposed to anything in particular is that broadly right yeah that's exactly right yeah so i think the way that most diagnostics work is they look for particular levels of one molecular species so one biomarker essentially so that could be a protein or amino acid or levels of or a particular genetic marker so covid is a great example you're looking for either a bit of covid nucleic acid or you're looking for a fragment of the virus capsid and you know exactly what you're looking for every time a new variant comes out we can look exactly and we know okay we're looking for this exact DNA sequence. And that's brilliant for diseases like COVID where they are directly associated with one thing, which is very exactly measurable. Unfortunately, the majority of diseases are not really uh, highly attributable to one or a very small number of biomarkers. And they're actually associated with changes across a whole range of different biomarkers. And that can be quite difficult for traditional diagnostic tools to entangle. So um, the idea behind the platform is that it could be adapted quite easily to look at a lot of different potential morbidities. Uh, <laughs> how do you go about working out which one, uh, you as a company, 
are thinking about targeting first? The way in which we went around choosing this lead candidate was a factor of two things. First of all, as a small company, you have to chase the money to a certain extent. You have to look for the one where you can make a a meaningful impact on patient outcome. And that obviously will lead to a potential market, which leads to potential investment, which leads to all of the business development opportunities and everything that you can essentially to grow your company. And then the second factor was to look for ones which had a good potential synergy with our technology. So we're really quite early in our journey we're only two years out of the university. And like most university technologies, it doesn't come out fully baked. It's an academic pursuit. And at some point you decide it's ready to spin out, but that doesn't mean it's 100% ready. It doesn't. It absolutely doesn't mean it's ready for commercial or clinical deployment. So we had to find a disease where we felt that, you know, it, our technology was good enough, but it was also a big enough addressable market that we would it would make the company meaningfully more valuable if we could demonstrate that it worked. Just to go back to the point that you touched on spinning out of the university and it always inevitably requiring a significant amount of further polish. When did you know when the right time to spin it out was? I mean, this is absolutely an art and not a science. Okay. And there is so many timing things and there's so much luck and other, other factors involved that I think I can't I absolutely can't give you a guide. Um, for us, it was a combination of the fact that we had a project that uh, essentially was being incubated in, in Dex Lab. He was getting a few of his really keen PhD students and postdocs to work on it in their spare time. Uh, we had a commercial collaborator who was kind of bringing us interesting samples and allowing us to do some of the early proof of concept stuff. And really what we did is we, we had our first nice result and we'd done some underpinning work to try and understand the system. And we had the legacy of all the kind of fundamental work that had been going on that gave us a basis to understand the system and believe that it wasn't just a fluke or something that wasn't representative. And then the final piece of that was that we we started having tentative discussions with some investors and we got quite strong investor pool. So a lot of enthusiasm essentially to invest. And I think that was one of the things that pushed us over the edge to say, right, okay, if they're excited, then, um, you know, there's probably there's probably a good chance that it's a goer. So you at that point in time were still an academic? It was part of my job was to commercialise these projects. You know, I was kind of to a certain extent walking a line between my role in commercialising these projects more generally and then my kind of slightly more personal interest in maybe kind of jumping over and leading one of these companies. So that's why at some point I had to make a kind of cut off and say, right, I'm you know, I'm going to quit my university job and you know, move across into the company. I appreciate you sat um, probably more than most researchers do on the innovation management side of things. So you had kind of a bit more of a window into that world. But can you talk to me about what it feels like or felt like to go through the upskilling process into that CEO position? I think one of the things for me is I've always been quite excited about this area. So I think if you are interested and excited by a topic, you should find yourself like consuming it in your spare time it shouldn't be like a work thing it shouldn't be like right okay okay sit down at my desk right now I need to spend the next eight hours learning how to be a CEO or doing several jobs actually for the last kind of uh, you know 10 years and then in my spare time I was thinking about you know how to do a spin-out company how do you commercialize you know what's customer discovery customer development uh, how you know how would a small company interact with big companies how do you build a team you know all of those kind of key factors and 
And so I was kind of building it in my head for a long time. And, you know, obviously pre-COVID, there were lots of events and in-person things. Now there's an awful lot of stuff online. So I was, you know, attending events in, in the evenings and, and other things. So the upskilling process started quite a long time ago. Actually, you know, it's worth saying it took me 10 years to go from a PhD student to a CEO. So there isn't a kind of, there are lots of brilliant courses and things available, but a lot of it, you know, I think if you're really excited by it, you'll, you'll seek that stuff out yourself and you'll find people that you that know more than you and, uh, you know, and just keep bouncing ideas off people and you will eventually find a thing that, you know, you get traction with. Rosa is related to the field that you studied, but isn't based on your own research. How did you find balancing the upskilling and leading the technical side as as well as the commercial side so yeah i'm absolutely not allowed to hold a pipette i don't get to do any lab work at all i kind of think about my own kind of technical background as knowing enough to ask sensible questions but not knowing too much so much that i get bogged down in the detail as a ceo has to be quite broad brush and be able to take a kind of high level view of things but we also have people who are real details people which is absolutely required to overcome some of the technical challenges and then make sure that you apply you know you reach all of the regulatory standards and just the, and all of the details things required for a company and especially one in a in medical field so i think yeah my, my kind of technical background is very very useful from a troubleshooting and high level overview and a vision point of view and also from the aspect of talking the same language as my team our company makeup is five full-time employees two chemists a biochemist and a data scientist so you essentially have to know enough but you you know it, you don't necessarily have to be an expert you know the whole point of employing people to work in the company is other people are the experts and you're just there to make connections you know bringing together brilliant people and getting them focused on achieving one thing is, is my main main role really the benefit is a fewfold you've sat in a perfect position to prepare for actually running this company where you know enough to have the conversations and present and talk to the technical side with credibility, but not so much that you become distracted by trying to solve the technical problems because yeah. that's that's the technical team's job. One of the things about being a spin-out company is you can't get too wedded to any particular ideas. You might think it, your technology is good for one thing. And if that's the thing that you've been developing in your time at the university, you can get very wedded to that. And there can be a big kind of sunk cost around throwing that in the bin and doing something different. You have to be prepared to kind of to set the vision, set the direction of travel for the company and throw away stuff which is not contributing towards towards that vision, even if it's scientifically painful, even if from a kind of intellectual point of view, the scientist and you might really want to understand why something is working the way it is. But if that's not important for you getting to your next inflection point and building the company, then that has to that has to go in the bin for, for the moment. Well, what does a typical day look like for you at the moment? Every day is so different. Typical days. So we had a two hour team meeting. So that was very technically focused. We were talking a lot about our next grant application and, and how we were going to build that and yeah. what the subject was going to be, what problem we were going to solve, what we we're going to try and achieve, who we we're going to partner with, all of those kind of things. This afternoon, we're doing recruitment. We're doing interviews tomorrow. We're talking to a VC tomorrow afternoon catch-ups with each individual team member and going to a launch event on Thursday night and then all the rest is emails and and, and everything else that that you kind of do in a normal office job so it's it's by far the most varied job that I've ever done you know you spend some time talking to lawyers and accountants yeah. spend a lot of time on the kind of nuts and bolts of running a business and, and then you spend a lot, a lot of time on the kind of big picture stuff um, and you know working with people and closing in new interactions and things. I guess always a balance of knowing enough about all those individual topics of which there are quite a lot 
that you can kind of talk to them to the level that they need to be talked to and upskilling yourself in, in those. How do you do that? How do you feel that you can make comfortable decisions about HR things, equally accounting and, and financial projections and yeah. all of those bits? That was one of the biggest lessons I think I've learned over the last two years is about not trying to do everything myself because I kind of had this idea, brilliant, you know, especially the, the, the kind of makeup of Rosa, you know, four scientists and me, so you think, okay, four people do the science, I'll do everything else. I was really enthusiastic about the, you know, the idea of starting a company. And so I wanted to do everything. I wanted to like, oh, okay, great. I'll, you know, I'll learn how the accounting software works and I'll, you know, I'll get into all the legals and all that kind of stuff. And you very quickly realise that firstly, there is not enough time in the day to, to do all of those things to anywhere near a good enough standard. Uh, also, you're intellectually not capable of doing those kind of things because there are much better people who would find, do a better job more easily than you. And your time as a CEO is much better spent on leadership and vision and things that are really going to add value to the business. So a lot of the learning from me was essentially about what to let go. The question I nearly always ask myself when any new task comes in is like, is this genuinely a task for me or is it going to be outsourced? And if it's outsourced, who's the best person for it to go to? And what would you describe the role of being a CEO? Like, what does it actually feel like? It's a weird place to be in because I often feel both like I am the stupidest person in the room. Every single person in the company is much more expert in the thing that they do than I am. I'm a complete generalist. So every single person is more specialist than me and knows more about what they do than I do. In comparison to any individual other person, I'm completely ignorant. And, you know, I have to get kind of comfortable with that. Equally, you have the responsibility for the whole package on your on your shoulders, and so you're you're kind of trying to hold an incredible amount of information in your head at the same time, and that's and that that can be relatively stressful, especially when you get into kind of emotive things like funding, for example. So just getting to the point where our bank balance was going down and down and down, and we were waiting and waiting and waiting on this money, and you have to kind of have that. Okay, you know what happens if what happens if there's a lot of there's a lot of kind of multiple strands of thought going on okay what if this happens what if that happens whereas a lot of a lot of my staff are in a really privileged position in some ways that they can just be like my job is to do this and to just work away chip away at this particular problem but I think my job is to constantly think about all the possibilities and their impacts on Rosa and impacts on you know and everything else it, it quickly racks up the number of just tasks some of them absolutely minor some of them obviously maybe maybe more important how do you find that you balance decoupling life as someone that runs a startup from the rest of life because I, I understand it can become a, a bit of an all-consuming activity for a lot of people pre-covid i used to go to work i used to jump on my bike cycle to work and that was really good thinking time and i get into work i would work and then i'll jump on my bike have some more thinking time and then i'd be at home and in general i kind of didn't work too much at home I think now it's 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 a lot more difficult. Everything is blended in together. It is kind of quite quite tricky. Basically, one of the biggest factors is there is a never-ending supply of work. So I have systems in place that keep me organised and act as my second brain. And I used to try and get to the end of my to-do list. Well, that never happens. It will never happen again. I will never be a point where I'm like, okay, I've got to the end of my to-do list. Getting comfortable with that and getting comfortable with just creaming off the, the most important tasks and measuring yourself what measuring yourself and your achievements not in terms of how many items you ticked off your to-do list but on how much value you added to the business what does um I, I guess like projecting to the future whether it's year five or whether it's year 10 whenever something is in 
the marketplace, I guess, like what does success for Rosa look like? Like what, what is the big dream? But if you're excited about science and technology, and particularly but the commercialization of science technology, it's not for the sake of you know it being valuable for money. It's about real world application. That's that's always been the thing that I've been excited about. So it's one of the reasons why I didn't stay in academia. It's one of the reasons I didn't want to be a PhD student and, and spend 10 hours a day perpetuating is because that the actual science was cool, but what I was really excited about was how do we apply that? How is that going to make a meaningful difference? And if it's not, then it's to me, it's not that exciting. For someone who is developing an early stage technology, essentially, you want to see that technology reach fruition. So that for me is the point where I'm going to consider all the work that we've put in to really have meant something. You know, I, I want to I want to see someone or me or, you know, whoever it is, be sampled um, and for their material to be examined using our system in anger and for, for them to be diagnosed or hopefully not diagnosed, you know, told they got the all clear from a particular disease. Rosa's sensing platform represents the next generation of diagnostic approaches, looking at the sum state of a sample rather than solely targeting a single disease indicator. If they are successful, this paradigm shift could represent a step change in how we engage with healthcare, from reactive to focused on regular baseline monitoring, fundamentally improving the state of human health. You've been listening to a conversation with Dr. Randy Boyce, CEO of Rosa Biotech. I'm Dr. Ben Miles. This has been the Spin Up Science Podcast. Thanks for listening. See you next time.